Luke chapter 12 and verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, no, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Thus far, the reading of God's word that he blessed to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, I want to begin uh, in, in this way. The average American has more stuff than we know what to do with, I trust that's fairly straightforward in most of our minds. So we do two things with our stuff. (laughs) We store it and we throw it away. We store it, I just read an interesting article actually this morning in the Wall Street Journal about the multi-billion dollar industry of storage units in America. It's actually one of the hottest real estate markets uh, in, uh, in every sector over the past 10 years. Because over the past 10 years, you could argue we have accumulated more stuff not just than any other country on the planet, but than any other time in American history. And so we store it. Nothing wrong with the storage unit, nothing wrong with owning them, (laughs) because indeed they're oftentimes handy. But what it displays to us is something very clear about our American life, that we like our stuff, we like our possessions. In fact, so much that many people will actually store their stuff in a storage unit and they'll pay more over the course of years than the stuff in the unit's actually worth. That's how much we love our possessions. So we have a ton of stuff and we store it or we throw it away. The average American throws away 80 pounds of clothing a year. In 1980, the average American threw away one-fifth of that amount of clothing per year. Again, our clothing demands haven't changed, right? (laughs) But the amount of clothing that we buy and then throw away, that's obviously changed. We throw away on average three times more than the average country does. 1,700 pounds of garbage per person in America ends up in the city dump. Again, more than three times the average. Why do I highlight our storage and waste habits? For one reason only, not to cast shade on what we might store or how much we throw away, but just this, to show that we're a country and a culture of excess possessions. That's just beyond dispute and debatable. Why is it important to know that we are in a culture of excess possessions? Because we're all products of our culture to some extent. If we lived in Somalia, Sierra Leone, Malawi, some of the poorest countries on earth, they don't have a problem storing stuff. They don't have anything to store. (laughs) They don't have a garbage problem, you could argue, because they don't have anything to throw away. But here in America, we have tons of possessions, tons of them literally drowning in them. We don't own our possessions anymore. You could argue our possessions own us. That's how our culture lives. 
And whether we like it or not, as followers of Christ with brand new hearts, we are all products of our culture to some extent. And based on where we live, we're going to have to deal with the sins that go on in our culture. And we're going to have to repent probably of a lot of those things. We are influenced to some degree by where we live. Why does this matter? Because in a culture which prizes stuff, which idolizes possessions, in a culture which teaches us that we are only one purchase away, one bonus check away, one lottery ticket away from true happiness, it's easy to lose sight of the minuscule value of stuff in this world. And when we lose sight of the small value of possessions, we can end up spending our lives chasing the possessions of the world with all the comfort and ease they can bring, only to discover that we wasted our lives and time on the mere accumulation of possessions. The mere accumulation of possessions, beloved. Because accumulating possessions doesn't amount to anything. Jesus makes that very clear. Life does not consist in the accumulation and the abundance of possessions. Now, context here regarding Luke 12. Jesus is standing in front of a big crowd. And there's one who pipes up in the midst of this crowd, who indeed is just like the average American, a materialist concerned about possessions and money. And why do I say that? Because if you start back in Luke 12, verse 1, uh, you'll notice that there's, again, thousands of people that are around Jesus. And Jesus teaches the people about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of that. Don't live one way in public and another way in private. What the Pharisees are teaching is damnable. Beware of their leaven. It can infect you in a really bad way. He's calling people to live a life of integrity. Then he warns the crowds about the fear of man because the religion of the Pharisees was a religion of intimidation. He says, don't fear them. Don't fear people who once you die, they can't do anything else to you. Fear the one who after you die can put you in hell. In other words, fear God. These are some pretty stiff warnings. And then Jesus teaches the vast crowd about standing firm and acknowledging Christ before men and about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is the unforgivable sin. And then he speaks to the crowds about persecution if you're going to follow him. And after all that great spiritual teaching, this guy in the crowd pipes up. And you know the only thing he's concerned about? I want my half of the money. <laughs> divide the inheritance. I want my half of the land. Hey, teacher, verse 13, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Again, surrounded by this incredible teaching, all he's concerned about is money and possessions. That's all he cares about. He has one concern on his mind. And he doesn't ask Jesus to be the arbiter. Deuteronomy 21 and other passages in the law and a host of oral tradition and rabbinic tradition had stipulated how inheritance were to be divided. And it was within the realm of the authority of rabbis to actually act as arbitrators in certain cases to help people divide up the inheritance, to figure out the will of God in the matter and also the will of the people who left the inheritance and so do what was honorable in the sight of all. But he's not asking Jesus, hey, can you take a look at this and make sure that things are being done equitably? He says, Jesus, I want you on my side. You go tell my brother to divide up that inheritance. In other words, I'm going to tell Jesus what to do. He's telling Jesus, act on my behalf against my brother. So again, he's not looking for justice. He's just looking for selfish gain. The issue of dividing an inheritance was 
not always so straightforward. So sometimes you needed help. And this man wasn't just asking for that. He was asking that he could get a lot. Kenneth Bailey writes, the petitioner, this guy in the parable, has decided what his rights already are. He only wants assistance in pressuring his brother into granting those rights. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment. If you happen to be part of a family which has an inheritance, parents who own a house or who maybe saved up a big 401k or whatever the case may be or have tons of land, and you stand in line to get an inheritance, be very careful about what that does to your heart and my heart, beloved. For this man, it was eating him up. In fact, this man's desire to just have more possessions, this man's desire to get what he think is due him in that inheritance is actually the cause of the parable of the rich fool. This man's being foolish. And probably after the parable was done, we don't hear any more about him, do we? He just walked away because Jesus indirectly and actually fairly directly just called him a fool from God's perspective. Beloved, an inheritance can be a great thing. It can also be the biggest curse on a family. In Northwest Iowa, my dad-in-law is an auctioneer. <laughs> he has the privilege of auctioning off land that is worth anywhere from 20, I think they set the record now, $30,000 an acre for just tillable farm ground, right? Black dirt earth. <laughs> That's it. 30,000 bucks an acre. And a lot of it is in the mid 20,000s. If you own then 500 acres, you're worth 10 to $15 million. There's a lot of farmers in Northwest Iowa worth more than Chicago businessmen. And he has told me over and over again, recounted just how much this tears people apart. Siblings that used to get along. Siblings like this brother here probably who used to have a good relationship. Now they're at each other's throats. They hate each other all over money all over possessions. And Jesus is warning not just this guy, but all of us, take care. It might be better not to actually get the inheritance. And another thing to think about too is, if you have a family with a lot of stuff, it's our parents' stuff, right? It's our grandparents' stuff. It's not ours. What if they want to give it all to charity? What if they don't want to give it to us? Isn't that their right? Of course it is. So if this man actually had his head on straight, he'd say, teacher, I just want to know what the will of my parents is and the will of God in this. Because if it's not do me and it's not supposed to come to me, then I don't want it. And I'll take that as God's will. So just be careful about this, beloved, because with a lot of money comes a lot of responsibility and stewardship and also comes a ton of heartache. And it can create a lot of difficulty in relationships. As we're seeing here, right with this man. Verse 14, Jesus responded to this man, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? That's a negative response. Jesus saying, why, why are you coming to me with this? Haven't you been hearing what I've been teaching about? Why are you concerned about this? And one commentator wrote, Jesus was not showing indifference to the claims of legal justice. He wasn't saying, oh, it's not a big deal to divide the inheritance improperly. But he was insisting that there is a greater gain than getting an inheritance and a greater loss than losing it. And so Jesus begins his parable of the rich fool with a warning. Verse 15, he said to them, now this is to everybody, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the word take care is 
to see with the mind, to perceive. <laughs> like, come on, can't you see this? Open up your eyes and take a look at it. And then be on your guard is actually a military term. Be on your guard against, be vigilant against all covetousness. Open your eyes, perceive, be constantly vigilant to guard yourself against covetousness. He says all covetousness too, because it has a ton of forms. And the word covetousness is an interesting word. It comes from two words, pleon, which means numerically more, and echo, to have or possess. And the word is such, it was used regarding a greedy, aggressive desire to have more, to gain more, to possess more stuff, more things, more possessions, more money, more things in this earth. And Jesus says in strong language, he could have said just take care or be on your guard. He said, take care and be on your guard against all of this crazy, greedy stuff. I can't tell you just how much the world disagrees with this message. There's a lot of professing Christians that disagree with this message. There's a lot of churches and pastors teaching against Jesus' message here, saying actually the sign of the blessing of God is when you go after a lot of that stuff and you should actually pray for it. We have bumper stickers with slogans. It's an old one by now. He who dies with the most toys wins. It's an attitude in the world around us that says the measure of life, the measure of a man or woman is whether or not they have an abundance of things that everyone else is trying to acquire. The goal of life is to be the person who has all those things, who's the envy of everybody. That's the message of our culture. You're only one purchase away from true happiness. If only you buy the next thing, then finally you'll be truly happy and life will be wonderful and you will become everything you dreamed you would become. And Jesus' teaching just defines that attitude, completely opposed to it. Why should we be on our guard against all covetousness, against this greedy desire to have more? Jesus tells us in verse 15, notice the word for. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? Because for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not the be all and end all in life. God didn't create us to own a ton of stuff. That's not why we're here as his redeemed people. T.W. Manson said it's true that a certain minimum of material goods is necessary for life. And we all get that. Food, shelter and clothing. You need those things to just live. But it is not true that greater abundance of goods means greater abundance of life. In fact, the more goods we have, you could argue, the less life we have. Because now you have to manage those goods and think about them all day long and figure out how to care for them. When my brother Ruben and I and Dave were over in Europe traveling for three months, uh, we hit 17 countries, put on 20,000 kilometers. It was kind of a whirlwind tour. We, we lived on almost nothing. We had a little budget and peanut butter and jelly and some, one time we fried a pizza on top of the engine, um, shut the hood, let it idle for 45 minutes to <laughs> melt the cheese. But all that aside, we, before, right before we left Calais, France to go over to Dover in England and tour England, Scotland and Wales, we loaded up our car with tons of food. We, Three, well, we were already full grown, but three starving large guys uh, had a back seat filled with all the food because we heard food was cheaper in France than in England. 
and we felt like kings. If you asked us, we would have said, oh, this is incredible. We had, we had food for like another two to three weeks, all in the back seat of that car. And it made us feel like we didn't need anything else. Now, the same thing can happen, beloved, we have, when we have abundance of possessions. The exact same thing. Soul, you've got enough. That's exactly what this guy did. Just chill out. Don't bother working anymore. And so Jesus knows this, and he tells the parable of the rich fool. Now, if you look at the story beginning in verse 16, we're told the man was rich. The land of a rich man. This man was already rich. This bumper crop didn't make him rich. It just made him richer. So this rich man who had plenty of stuff had a bumper crop one year. God gave him a bumper crop. This man didn't decide the seed's going to germinate more. This man didn't decide when the rains would come. This man was given a bumper crop by God. And instead of saying, oh, hey, this is amazing, Lord. You gave me all this excess. I don't know what to do with it. Let me give it back to your kingdom. He had an entirely different mindset. And he thought to himself, self, what am I going to do with all this stuff? What am I going to do with all this excess that I have? And if you look at the, how many times he uses the word I and my, he's completely selfish in what he's going to do with this. So he gets this bumper crop and he says, now what? Well, he could build more barns, but then that would take up some of his land. So how about I just tear down the old barns and I'll build new ones on top of those same spots, maybe even taller to store more. And then I could just take my ease and I can say to my soul, soul, you've got ample goods laid up for many years. And now you can just relax and do nothing. This is a pagan saying what the man says. It's pretty fascinating. He says, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And you'll remember in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul wrote, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This man's got the exact same attitude. I'm just going to sit here and eat and drink and make merry. I'm going to suck and siphon and squeeze as much pleasure and fun and self-satisfaction as I can out of this life. I'm going to live for pleasure and ease for as long as I live. And God says to him, maybe one of the most startling things ever, you fool. Now that's an abrupt transition in this whole parable. You fool coming straight from God. This very night, your soul is going to be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, requiring someone's soul, the language of requiring is to ask back or to demand back, which means that in the teaching of this parable, one of the things going on here is God is asking for this man's soul back to give an account, which means we'll have to give an account for our souls, what we've done with our lives, what we've done with our spiritual selves. And God's saying, your soul that I've given to you, I'm going to ask for it back tonight. It's over. You're dead. You're going to have to give an accounting, not for how many possessions you have, but for the soul that you have neglected to give to me and to serve me with. This man wasn't counting on death. This man didn't have it even in 
the world of his mind or heart. He was just thinking, I'm going to live it up. But death, beloved, in God's providence, knocks on the front door of the mansion and it knocks on the hallway door of the homeless shelter equally. Death overcomes the wealthy and the poor of like. Death doesn't play any favorites. Death will take the life of the millionaire as quickly as the life of the poor. Death isn't deterred in one second or by, death doesn't even hesitate based on the number of zeros in one's bank account balance or the number of acres one's own, one owns. And then Jesus said, the things you have prepared, God said this, whose will they be? The crux of the matter for the man in the parable is he didn't count on being separated from his wealth. He actually was coming up with plans to keep his wealth really close. He's not going to sell it on the market. He's not going to drive the price down when he sells all this on the market. He's going to keep his wealth close. And God says, tonight you're going to die and your wealth is going to belong to somebody else. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The language of rich toward God is interesting. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Rich toward God is the opposite of living like life consists in the abundance of possessions. We might use the synonym rich toward God is storing up treasure in heaven rather than on earth where moth and rust can destroy. So what Jesus is saying, what God is saying, teaching us, is that indeed we can live as those who think this life is all there is and get a ton of possessions and maybe we'll actually pull it off. But if we neglect our souls and we're not rich toward God, then it's not going to amount to anything for our benefit. And we'll discover that on the last day. Rich toward God is to be generous toward the things which God delights in. Generous toward his church. Generous toward others, toward the poor, toward those who need help. Stewarding the resources he has given to us rather than hoarding them for selfish pleasure and ease of life. That's what it is to be rich toward God. Now, there's nothing wrong with having received much. This man in the parable isn't slighted because he had a bumper crop. That's not Jesus' point. There's nothing wrong with being successful in our jobs. Nothing wrong with that at all. Blessing from the Lord. But the question we must each ask and answer is this. What is my attitude toward my possessions and what is my use of my possessions? What is my attitude toward them and how do I use them or steward them? Whom am I serving with what God has entrusted to my care? Am I only serving me or am I serving God and others with it? David Gottesman or Goatsman, I'm not sure you pronounce his name, was a Jewish man born in New York City in 1926. After serving in World War II in the military, he received his bachelor's and master's degrees, went to work for a company doing mergers and acquisitions. And in 1963, he met Warren Buffett and became good friends with him. And their friendship involved playing golf and talking with each other every Sunday night for a few years about which stocks they were going to invest in together. And David ended up buying tons of stock of Berkshire Hathaway, which was a company that Buffett owned. And he made a ton of money. In fact, uh, this David Gottsman said, there's probably never been a better return on any stock held in 44 years in the history of Wall Street. He ex estimated that from the original investment, it increased 6,000 times its value. 
um, in 44 years. This man died this past September 2022 worth 2.9 billion. How much is that? Let me just put it in context, especially for some of us kids here. We can all figure this out. There are about 4,000 houses in Pella. The average house in Pella is worth about 300,000. That means if you bought all of Pella's houses, it would cost 1.2 billion. There are 5,200 houses using housing units in Oskaloosa. The average housing unit there is about 175,000. All of Oskaloosa's houses are worth about 0.9 billion. All of Newton's houses, if you take the number of houses and the value, are worth about 1 billion. This David Gottsman could have owned 100% of Pella's houses, 100% of Oskaloosa's houses, and 90% of Newton's houses all by himself. And then he died. And that's it. His soul was required of him. And now all of his money belongs to somebody else. And none of his wealth can benefit him at all. It's just done. You can't take a single nickel with you from this world. We've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, common one, right? Nobody has ever hired a moving company on funeral day, ever. It has never happened. Nobody has ever called up a moving company on the day they're gonna be buried and said, can you bring all my stuff and move it to heaven or to hell for me? No moving company would even be able to pull that off. Beloved, Jesus Christ came into this world broke. Broke poor, not just poor, broke poor. Michael Jr., he's a comedian, a Christian comedian, says, well, I grew up, I was poor. Not just poor, poor. We couldn't even afford the other letters. <laughs> that's, how, that's how Jesus came into the world, right? Born into a poor family. The world can't figure this out. If you're the king of kings and you're the ruler of the rich, when you come into the world, wouldn't you come and own everything? Wouldn't you come in here and just take it all? Once you come down here and show everybody who's who and what's what by having all the gold and say, just bring it to me or I'll wipe you out. I'm the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. But Jesus came down here, wasn't even born in Jerusalem or Rome, just born in Bethlehem, laid in a feeding trough, a manger, born into a poor family beloved and was obedient perfectly and accumulated a righteousness and he went to the cross. If you're the king of kings, you don't go to a cross. And he went to the cross to suffer and to die for you and me. So we could have not an abundance of possessions in this life, but eternal life. And we could have that eternal life forever. It's eternal. And it's a life that will be perfect and glorious. It's the life we all want now. But God says, you can't have it now. You have to wait. It's what every human being is starving for. I want perfect life. <laughs> you can have it in Jesus. And if you look at the life of Jesus, there is no one who could conclude, no one in their right mind who could say, as I look at Jesus Christ, what he taught us by how he lived is that the more you get, the better life is. He died with nothing in the bank account. Maybe they had a little bit, the ladies who were with him, who were providing for him and the disciples out of their means. Maybe they had a little bit left over in the disciples' treasury. Had a cloak on his back. They divided his garments. That's it. That tells us, beloved, that there is something way more important in this world than the amount of possessions we have. Now, we live in America. 
And that is not the message that advertising gives us, social media gives us, anything we'd see on television or on billboards or anywhere else we get our information from. It is not what the world thinks here in America. And we live in this world, beloved, we do. We are Americans and we're followers of Jesus first, but please don't discount and please don't think, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, none of this really affects me. Then you're probably affected by it a lot if you can't see it. So take an account, take an examination. I'm doing the exact same thing. Think hard about your relationship with money and possessions. Do you own them or do they own you? Are we rich toward God via generosity and giving and using our money to bless others? Or are we selfish in our use of money? Are we living to store up treasure on earth? Or are we living to store up treasure in heaven? And maybe another way of looking at it is not so much how much do we give, but how much do we keep? The rich fool determined he would keep everything he had with not one thought about giving for God's kingdom or giving to help the poor. And Keith and Kristen Getty, they have the song Simple Living. It's got a cute little tune to it. And the lyrics are this, not what you give, but what you keep is what the king is counting. Now, it's possible to make a lot of money and give a lot without ever having to be sacrificial. Remember, the widow gave everything she had. And their point in the song is not what you give, but what we keep. That's what the king is counting. And they go on to write, oh, teach me, Lord, to walk this road, the road of simple living, to be content with what I own and generous in giving. And when I cling to what I have, please rest it, please remove it quickly from my grasp. I'd rather lose all the things of earth to gain the things of heaven. And for any here or anyone we might know who doesn't believe, you might obtain great wealth in this life and you might not. But if you're at all concerned about your soul and where you will spend forever without end, I urge you to consider Jesus' words. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life consists in knowing God through Jesus Christ. One's life consists in the salvation that is provided in Jesus from God's wrath that is to come. That's life. The world's lying to you. The devil is lying to you. And you're lying to yourself. If you think that the greatest thing you can do with the life God has given to you is to amass a bunch of stuff and a big bank account, stop lying to yourself. Stop believing the world. Stop believing the devil. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus. And in him, you will find an amazing life that is abundant and that will last forever. Let's pray.